Hello. It's Hello. Been so Hello. long since I've seen you. It's been, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good to reconnect. It's great to reconnect. <laughs> um, great Brum. to reconnect over these microphone cables. Over these microphone cables. Um, all right. Turn so off the stereo. It's been on all day. <laughs> it has. There yeah. we go. There we go. Stereo off. Okie doke. You know, that's in our professional podcasting studio. In the studio here. <laughs> the studio. <laughs> Our daughter had a Zoom call today with a friend uh, in a family that has like one million children and pets, and that kid was like, your house is a mess. <laughs> Take a long look at the mirror there. Seems serious. Take a long here. look at the mirror. Uh, all right. So just to give a little recap on where we are. I need it. I need um, it. So we... Are ending the semester, having just done our, you know, we've talked about migration and gangs and drugs, moved into a bit about how mm-hmm. COVID is affecting the region. The students are all... Oh, yeah, we had that downer one We last had the time. downer yeah. one last time. The students should have turned in today or will be turning in soon. Were there. they really down about that one? Did how? What was the feedback like on that one? Um, People weren't as down as maybe we were in their reflections, but partly Mm -hmm. they had a task to do. So a lot of them were writing about what was happening in the countries that they were writing their position papers for. Um, Some of them, I think, were depressed uh, about the whole sitch. And some really hadn't thought very much about, you know, Latin America isn't headline news. And so, you know, hadn't thought about how it was affecting the region in particular. Uh, So I think it was... uh, that was good. Lots of people had lots of interesting stuff that they were finding in their countries. Um, so that's good. So, But we're ending the semester now with a very short unit on transnational human rights movements. So we're going to talk about Argentina uh, as an early example of one of these transnational human rights movements today. Uh, then we will look at the Zapatistas in Mexico next week. Okay. Um, and the students will finish up with a documentary that we'll watch, I guess, too. I haven't seen it yet about Guatemala. Mm. Um, so that should be interesting. Okay. Um, in all these examples, movements have basically used international attention and international networks for leverage. Um in their movements. And so the students read a chapter today uh, out of Keck and Sakink's 1998 book, uh, Activists Without Borders. Uh, so that was a big one. An oldie, one. but a goodie, yeah. Um, is, that the, is that the same Keck that's here at SU? No. No, okay. They're both women. The Keck here is a dude, I think. Yes. Um, so anyway, one of the big contributions of this book and why I think it's still an important book even now. Blue cover, orange type, right? I think that's right. It's yeah. kind of a yeah, two-tone blue, yep. kind of blue-gray yep. maybe. Yep. Um, yeah, I read it in grad school. I remember it well. Um, anyway, but one of their big contributions was this idea of what they call the boomerang pattern. Um, and that is they describe as the students didn't read this part of the book. They okay. They lay out this sort of theoretical framework earlier on in the book. Um, But the boomerang pattern of influence they describe as one in which, and this is a quote um, from page 12 of the book, domestic NGOs bypass their state and directly search out international allies to try to bring pressure on their states from outside. Hence the boomerang, right? So you're going around your national government into the international arena and hoping that you Mm -hmm. will then be able to pressure, get pressure on your state from international actors, Mm -hmm. knowing that you can't do very much on your own internally, right. given your political context. 
Um, so the chapter that the students read, the first half of the chapter looks broadly at Latin America, uh, and the second half focuses uh, mostly on the responses to Argentina's military dictatorship uh, that started with the military coup of March 1976 and ended in 1983 after some 10,000 people had been uh, killed or disappeared. Um, then there's a brief section in the chapter on Mexico as a case where the lack of networks meant that this process did not work uh, prior to the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. But for reasons of time, we're not going to talk about Mexico today since we're going to be thinking about it quite a bit uh, next week when they read about okay. the Zapatistas. So this is all Argentina. So we're going to talk some broad sort of stuff in the region and um, then okay. the case that we'll be thinking about throughout So I'm expecting the Argentina when they lost Exactly. That's what I'm expecting. That's who you're going to see, um, as well and as a bunch Plaza of... Plaza de what? I forgot. The Plaza de Mayo. Uh -huh. Plaza de Mayo. The yeah. madres and the abuelas, so the moms and the grandmas yeah. of okay. the plaza. That's what um, I remember. Y'all will be talking a bit about From them. my college Spanish class. <laughs> my college Spanish, Spanish class. class. The, um, it was a lit class right. that I took. I'm sure. And we watched a lot of movies. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And one of the movies we watched was La Historia Oficial. Uh-huh, yep, about the babies that... Yep. Yep. So I remember There's that, actually, there's some... Th there You get a little bit of the sort of... I don't know if I gave you any quotes, but there are some stories that the students would have read uh, in mm -hmm. this chapter about the babies that... Mm -hmm. And, like, particularly then about the sort of for forensic anthropology to try to sort mm -hmm. of figure out, you know, is there proof that these women right. gave birth and, right. you know, sort of... Right. Where are these babies, and how do you establish paternity and whatnot? Yeah, it's a good movie. The official story, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that too. It's been yeah. a while though. Been yeah, a minute. It's been, it's been a while for me too. I, <laughs> it's been a minute been since a, I was in college. I probably watched it in college too. Should yeah. I get going? Go for it. Go All for right, it. page 84. In Latin America, there was a strong tradition of support for international law as a means by which weaker countries might contest the interventions of the more powerful especially the United States. But while legalism had primarily been used to support concepts of sovereignty and non-intervention, international law also supported the promotion of human rights and democracy, which involved recognizing limits to the doctrine of absolute sovereignty and non-intervention. So, in other words, let me see if I can get this right, this tradition of international law that was developed as a way to protect Latin America from the overreach of its imperial neighbor to the north yes. was now used as a way to bring regional pressure back in. Right. And this is particularly the kinds of regional pressure that we've been thinking about quite a lot this semester as we've done all of our work on and with the OAS, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this sort of sense that I think there's a constant tension in the OAS that we've seen over and over. And so I highlighted it here for the students again in case they missed it of this tension between this like very strong sense of sovereignty and kind of, you know, the, the ways in which how important that is. Local control. Local control. Mm -hmm. And that tension with these bigger conceptual normative values like democracy and human rights. Right. And you see that, again, this kind of push and pull of that, that sort of tendency coming out a little bit here where the human rights side is in this mm -hmm. period mm -hmm. winning, in a way, we could say, over these kind of concerns of sovereignty and even you see that tension even within some of these actors that are using these international strategies which is kind of fun like in the actual like individuals as right. opposed to these sort of thinking about this as states and you know these kind of actors right right interesting so we'll talk a little bit about that 
part. Yeah. Where we have individuals within these networks kind of not exactly, I mean, there may be conflict within the organizations. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see a little bit. We'll see a little bit of that. That's interesting. Uh, That's interesting. All right. So you've just, that was just to flag this tension. Now I've got some longer ones here. So I think I'm going to probably end up pausing in the middle of this card. Um, yeah, you got two here, I think. Two I do have two, ones. it seems. I went ahead and put them on one card because they're both related to the same topic. And we're running low on index cards. <laughs> and we're also running low on index cards. All right, so page 88 and 90. Professional podcast. Amnesty International formed in the 1960s. You know, I was the president of my high school's Amnesty International It's amazing. I, I didn't, you didn't know actually that. know that. You That's maybe something new <laughs> learned. <laughs> About you. Yeah, yeah. I uh, took it over from this kid who was a new kid in the school. From He was from Indiana, and he was kind of a punk. Uh-huh. And I was into Amnesty International. Sure, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I have Why been? not? I think at that point I still had my Young Communist League card. Uh-huh. Which we've been talking about a lot and, recently. And, uh, yeah, I got, I was... I sent off, like, I wrote letters and stuff. I would get these packets from right. Amnesty. Uh, for human rights things, yeah. yeah. And then I would send these letters. Yeah, well, you were part of a transnational human rights network. OG <laughs> NGO. All right. Uh, Amnesty International, formed in the 1960s, was the first human rights but organization. But you, you weren't in, in high school in the 1960s, just to be clear. No. You weren't actually OG. No, my father was. My <laughs> yeah. father was. <laughs> he was not, however, in Amnesty International. No, no, no. My mom may be more sympathetic to that in her, but probably not to that organization. Yeah. They weren't with a church, right? No, but we see a lot of the... They, sort they of... might have been with the Catholic church, which <laughs> my mom would have been a little bit nervous. Definitely about. nervous. All right. All right. Uh, Amnesty International formed in the 1960s was the first human rights organization to gain wide international recognition. It served as a training ground for human rights activists around the world. Then from the 1970s to the early 1990s, the international human rights NGOs expanded dramatically and the organizations that focused explicitly on human rights violations under both right-wing and left-wing governments, such as Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch committees, grew most rapidly, suggesting that the power of the human rights idea was partly the result of a certain principled neutrality. That part at the end was surprising to me that that the sentence ended with this principled neutrality. Well, I mean, you have to remember that this is Cold War context. Oh, I do. Right. I do. Um, And so the fact that they were calling out governments on both left and the right for human rights violations was really, and I think... um, I don't know, innovative is like the wrong word, but uh savvy. And but also like very different given the political context, right? That you would have a lot of this stuff would be taking these partisan lines and that they were sort of it was goes to this sort of idea of human rights and universalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which I know that we can in the sort of contemporary period come up with lots of critiques for why universal human rights are maybe, you know, there's critiques of that and whatnot that we need to be more particularistic. But in this moment, part of what allowed these groups to do their work and get access to some of these regimes was this um, neutrality that they were not perceived as pursuing. um, I mean, they were, of course, you know, slandered once they came out with negative reports on these regimes, but that the regimes were interestingly letting them come in 
and do, you know, monitoring right. and right. they had international cachet and, you know, um, so sounds, I think it was really interesting. quite interesting and something that I hadn't actually thought about in quite some time. Mm-hmm. It's been ages since I read this, uh, it's a good piece. Pro- that would be a good, an interesting project now. I mean, in sort of post cold war history, just to think about exactly, exactly how, all of that gets negotiated and how that ends up happening. I mean, it is the, fascinating. The other thing that's interesting is that they also called out human rights abuses in like the quote unquote first world, right? Oh, I remember that from my packets that AI yeah. would send me when I was in high school. So when they did those packets, they always picked a country that was what they would say in that time was first, second, and third world. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Second world was what? In danger of falling, I think. God, yeah, I can't even remember that whole lingo, no, no. right? Yeah, no, I was it remember. was that the communist world? I don't remember what second was. I can't remember either. What was the second world? Not a lot. No, because third was just developing. I don't know. So we, hey Siri, <laughs> what's the second world? I mean, I don't remember. I don't remember either. Actually, I should have looked it up before we started talking, but I didn't put that on a card. And then, of course, I second world up. countries. Um. Second world, this is Wikipedia. The second world is a term used during the Cold War for the industrial socialist states that were under the right. influence. You were right. Yeah. You were right. They were yeah. under the influence of the Soviet Union in the first two decades following World War II. All of these were at least originally within the Soviet sphere of influence. Right. Okay. I love that they're talking about spheres of influence. Oh, there. yeah. I mean, we still talk about that shit, right? Well, kind of, but we've been in not really. I mean, we will again, I think. Yeah. But we haven't been that much because we've been a hegemon for a while. Some examples of second world countries are Bulgaria, Turkey, right. Hungary, Poland, Poland Romania, yeah. Russia, and China. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's the communist countries. Yeah. So so this is our, this is the sort of, they were calling out from each. Yeah. I wish know. I could remember what they were, what. Um, what your campaigns were in the, what would that have been yeah, in the 90s? It would have been in the 90s, in the late yeah. 90s. Um. This is interesting for me because I didn't realize that, like, I was part of... No idea what you were doing. (laughs) No, I had no idea what I was doing at all. I just thought this kid... You know, I felt bad for this kid because I felt... I always felt bad for the new kids who came into my giant high school. Right. You know, in, like, sophomore year. And you were uh, sort of weirdo, fringe fringe weirdo, so, you know, normal. I didn't have very many friends. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. You are like, you're pretty social. Yeah, well, anyway, I felt bad for this guy. And I was into this stuff. You know, I mean, who's not into human rights? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Lots of people, as it turns out. <laughs> but in any case, moving on. <laughs> he knew all the cool punk bands. Yeah. You know, from Indiana, from like the weird yeah, Indiana totally. Christian punk scene. Obviously. All right. So they cultivated principled neutrality, uh, which meant calling out right, left, first, second, third world countries. Correct. Okay. Correct. And that was part of their strat. It was a strategic. And, or principled. I actually or think principled. it was principled, principled. though right. it may have also been strategic. But I actually think yeah. this is a principled stance. It's interesting, right? Because it could be, it, it's totally congruent with a kind of Western triumphalism at the end of the Cold War of like, Right, I mean, this is how I think human rights discourse gets, you know, um, critiqued, critiqued these days. Yeah. Right, is is it? It's just a Western construct, and da 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 da. Right, but like to the extent that that's true, 
you could see how this explosion of interest in human rights is part of this like Western triumphalism at the end of the Cold War, right? But like, you also see before then that like this was something that was when you read, and maybe this next quote is going to show a little bit of this, but when you see the networks, it was appealing not just to U.S. and Europeans, right? right. I mean, like, this was okay. resonant with people from across the globe. First, second, and third world. First, second, and All third right. world. Right. I mean, probably principally intellectuals, right? We're not talking about peasants necessarily. You know, like, this is right. like, but nonetheless, this has a, a kind of, before there really is maybe quite the same, like, cosmopolitan. The globalists. Globalists. Like, this was, I think, really profound for people not just in the industrialized mm -hmm. West, mm -hmm. right, that okay. you, you see it. All right, all right. So in the Argentine case on page 104, Amnesty's well-documented report helped demonstrate that the disappearances were part of a deliberate government policy by which the military and police kidnapped perceived opponents, took them to secret detention centers where they tortured, interrogated, and killed them, then secretly disposed of their bodies. Correct. That was what was in the Argentine report. Yep. And AI was one of the first to break that? Yes. They actually were really? given um, permission by the regime to come in and, like, do a Why a did the study. regime give permission? Because I think they thought oh, – these regimes always think they're going to come out looking – We talked we, about this about with Chile Yeah, the with other Pinochet night. thinking he would win. This is not uncommon that, like – I mean, everybody, but dictators, it's notable right. when they miscalculate so badly what will happen. So one of the things that was happening in this, in the, it's called the dirty war in Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was happening was that the, the military regime was what they called, it became like a verb to disappear, that they were right. disappearing people, right. right? So that instead of like having people in as political prisoners where you could like have a human rights report about it. They were like secretly killing people and pushing them out of airplanes. And their bodies into the disappear. Sea, right. right. Um, and so I think they thought like, great, come take a look. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to see. All the bodies right? are in the ocean. All the bodies are in the, it's not funny, but like, right. But all the bodies are in the ocean. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they really thought like, yeah, like we've whatever. Done a good we've, job. Done a, we've done a great job. Did a great job. Yeah. And so awesome. Come on down. And then the amnesty, you know, through their work, pulls up much more reports, and this was really one of the most hmm. influential. They won the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe, that I year. Had no idea that Amnesty. Um, yeah, so their work was really important, super important. So um, I always thought it was the abuelas and the madres. Well, them too, right? So we're going to get to them, right? Um, but this is interesting, and it's connected, right? It's not okay. unconnected. Hold on. Um, All right. So groups like Amnesty International, if we're going back into the framework that Keck and Sakink are working in, are the sort of one component of this transnational network that they're talking about. Um, they are the... The international, international NGOs. Right. Right? So they're not the only international actor, but the international NGOs like Amnesty form one kind of plank of this, like these transnational networks that were important mm -hmm. in the human rights uh, world. Um, and it's kind of, they have some interesting stories that, you know, you get some people that are coming to the international human rights movements because they themselves have been exiled from repressive regimes, right? So mm -hmm. that this is mm -hmm. like a kind of diaspora or whatever you want right. to call it, but people that are in exile... Um, so again, if we're thinking about pushing back a little bit against these just being these like liberal Western 
do-gooders, right, that they're actually mm -hmm. incorporating numbers of people that are fleeing their own regimes and coming with their own sort of frameworks and perspectives and whatnot, but then being formed by this international nonprofit. Um, well, people from outside of Latin America came to understand the human rights situation through religious, I mean, you have like missionaries, right? Not just Catholic, but of yeah, oh, various yeah. stripes, right? That are going and then my high school is certainly an evangelical Protestant. Yeah, that we're going and experiencing these, you know, countries and then having these repressive regimes come and we're watching these things happen while they were there as missionaries right. and right. being politicized in those moments. You also have academics of various stripes, again, with like country knowledge that are like mm -hmm. coming that are sort of back between multiple countries. Mm -hmm. um, some activists that, you know, for whatever reason, were like hippie travelers was, or whatnot. Right. Um, and there's a lot of attention, at least in there's a lot of attention to Latin America in this time yes. in general, right? Because of all the civil wars in Central America. Well, this is precedes and, that a little bit, but Cu Cuba has happened. Right. Um, I guess this is starting to get into that period of civil wars. Yeah, I guess that would be sort of Latin starting. Yeah. And those kind of networks that are are attempting to intervene right. in civil society from out, the outside from inter, international networks are right. gearing up. Right. This is like uh, Chile and Argentina and those bureaucratic authoritarian regimes were actually early on right. in this cycle right. of starting to sort right. of okay. So they helped perhaps they were part of what helped paving bring the way of focus these, to yeah. Other Cold War conflicts. Right, that are to come. Right, Interesting. As we, as we get there. Um, okay, so that is the international nonprofits. Then the next piece, right, which is who you started out talking about. Um, well, I mean, it's not, these aren't in any order other than the order they were in the book, right, is the domestic NGOs. Right, right. Um, which were formed in all these cases by obviously people's direct lived experience in these regimes. So I think the next card that you have will bring okay. us to the Madres. The yeah, that's list. right. That's right. Uh, 93, page 93. In Argentina, the mothers and the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo formed under the dictatorship. As one mother explained, when they kidnapped my daughter, I didn't know anything about Amnesty International or Inter-American Commission on Human Rights or the United Nations. We began to learn about, how these, about these organizations through people in Argentina that had an international vision like Emilio Mignone. He told us, you have to petition the OAS. You need to send letters to Amnesty. We didn't send letters directly to these places because we knew that they wouldn't arrive if they were addressed to Amnesty International. So we took advantage when someone traveled abroad to send letters. Mm -hmm. All right, so they were, what this is showing me, or what I'm taking from this is that, like, this group was not at all, um, didn't form with that, international vision in mind not initially right not initially. so i mean what but you quickly see, saw that as a possibility right and and it becomes um well I'll talk about all the ways in which those connections matter but the the Keck and king don't go into as much the domestic politics right. right right but i mean these mothers grandmothers however we want to think about them exhibited like tremendous bravery under extraordinarily mm -hmm. repressive circumstances when their family members are missing and you know, mm -hmm. they know of people being tortured and killed and whatnot, right? Um, so the women were not mobilized by transnational actors, right. right? They were ordinary women who, you know, came to be activists in many right. cases, right? right. Um, partly because a lot of the leaders, um, well, a lot of the leaders previously have been men, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about 
you know. You the, mean the leaders of Argentina or the leaders of social, resistance. like union union okay. leaders, okay. right? Like intellectuals at this time, you would have had a heavy male leadership, right? And then all those leaders were killed by the dictatorship, including right. the women who were also active. That right. was not to say there weren't women leader, sort of social yeah. movement kind of leadership or activists and whatnot. But those people tend to be the ones that were very early rounded up, right? right? So that you end up having these people that didn't start out as activists that become politicized by the death mm -hmm. of their children who were activists, their daughters, their sons, you know, whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, there's a huge domestic component that doesn't get talked about very much in the Keck and Sakink because that's not the part that's interesting. But then you have these women, some of which have never had political roles that are now not only political in the face of extreme repression, but also internationalized very rapidly, right? Right. So now making connections with these organizations that a year before they didn't even know existed, right? Right, um, right. I mean, it's just an, inter it's an interesting, to me it's interesting because it's like I see partly how because of this, this group's political naivete, they are not like... They don't know that they're doing something innovative here. Right. Yeah, right? in a way, like, I think. Yeah. They're just like, well, someone said we should write to the OIS. Someone said we should write to Amnesty. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, But they also know, I mean, yes and no, okay. right? Like, they don't know what they're doing when they're setting out. But, like, you know, they understand very rapidly, like most of us would, I think, in these situations. Like, this offers some measure of protection and this offers some measure of you know, technical competence that we do not ourselves possess, right? right. So they, they start very rapidly making connections with people like forensic scientists, right? And uh -huh. often from the, all really in this case from the U.S. So like the forensic dentists and the forensic mm -hmm. anthropologists and the forensic, like all these people that are able to do this work um, huh. to analyze evidence in the cases of the missing and dead relatives, right? Trying to, this, this stuff about establishing paternity, right? This like mm -hmm. becomes this connections with U.S. scientists, basically. Um, and one of the things that's interesting here is that you actually have some tensions within the group about whether this is the right move, making these international connections, especially with the U.S., right? So the U.S. Right. has a history, as my class well knows, of supporting these repressive regimes. And so some people in these activist groups are like, there is no way you should trust these U.S. scientists, sure. right? Sure. Because there's a sort of blanket distrust of the U.S. that comes from our policies. And so there's some ambivalence about whether the U.S. scientists are trustworthy, right? Makes Obviously. sense. Um, and you interestingly also have this other kind of opposition to the U.S. involvement that is about whether or not having these external scientists give an account will make the government not have to give an account. Like basically if the U.S. government's uh -huh. explained what has happened, these mothers and grandmothers were demanding the, the, the government say, like you killed right. our kids, right. right? Or whatever, right? You stole our grandkids or <clears throat> whatever that is, but that part of what mattered to them was having the government admit mm -hmm. what they had done, right? Because it was all secret and all, you know, so you didn't know, right? Your kid was gone and you would go to office to office to office trying to find what had happened, right? Um, so I think there was also some tension about like, okay, if we have these forensic anthropologists that give the, the account, then does is that like let the government off the hook. So there's a sort mm -hmm. of interesting tensions there of like, again, this is like on the strategic, right? Like sort of what is the right move? And I mean, well, ultimately also, also principled questions, too, yes. right? Not just strategic right. questions, no, absolutely. but like a principled question of right. like, is there a way that we can, you know, 
I mean, and these are interesting questions about enduring injustices or right. injustices that span a period of time and, and right. that kind of thing where, you know, is it, it is more than just a strategic question about like whether it matters as much if Amnesty International says they did this versus someone saying, yes, we, we did, did this. this right? right. And I mean, I think like now we might even think about this in terms, we would talk about this in terms of privilege, which I think wouldn't have, I never would have even thought about that in these terms 10 years ago, but now I kind of do. Right. I mean, in a certain regard, some of these victims are privileged in like one of the stories that, you hear is of someone who they have the body of their kid, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, part of why they can use forensic anthropologists and whatnot to do these studies about, like, does the woman, have, had she had the baby and, like, whatnot mm -hmm. is because they have a body, right? And so many people's families were, like, buried in mass graves or, right. like, dumped into the sea. And, like, so there is no body, right? So in a certain regard, it's, like, they may care more about the symbolic move from the government than somebody who actually is like, I want to find right. my grandkid. Like, right. I want, right. I, I want to prove that this, like, my daughter right. had a baby, and like that, you know. So, like, I think you right. have also different, you know, like different things that people are experiencing in the same crisis, right? That are also prompting different kind of emotional and strategic and principled responses, right? right? It's complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. All right, I'm going to keep moving a little bit. Go for it. Uh, intergovernment. This is from page 97. Intergovernmental agencies also played a role in the transnational human rights networks. The UN became heavily involved in the region, and the OAS also played a role. In fact, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, IACHR, of the Organization of American States, OAS, established in 1959, was reorganized and strengthened in 1979 when the American Convention on Human Rights entered, the for in entered into force. Uh, is that a the American Convention on Human Rights is an OAS thing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, like a directive or yeah. some kind of treaty-ish. Yeah, yeah, treaty. Treaty-ish. Kind of yeah. Thing. I don't think that one's the UN one. I think that's the OAS one. Right? Okay. The American UN Convention, is also. I would assume. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. That was the OAS. They're always universal or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the reorganized Commission on Human Rights became more active in promoting human rights in the region, especially in its influential 1980 report on human rights in Argentina. So the OAS gets, the OAS gets a little bit more interested, just in general, in human rights in the late 70s. Yeah, becomes more active in any case. And Why? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, in some ways they are... As we've talked about in the class, I mean, I don't have a, a full answer to this that I, like, I, I couldn't cite some sort of scholarship on this. Okay. What I will say that I know about what's happening in this period is that the OAS becomes, in a certain regard, completely sidelined during the Cold War because the U.S. is just, like, doing its own thing, right? Right. And so the OAS becomes this kind of defunct organization that we've talked about a lot in class of like, does the OAS even matter? It has no gotcha. teeth, right? We've talked about that in this podcast, course, right? I mean, that this is a sort of question. Um, and where I have sort of pushed is that like norms and information, which was what the OAS is about, does matter. And I think mm -hmm. we see that a little bit here where um, even though in this period the OAS is actually in in one of its most sort of toothless phases with the right. uh, with the US just being like well, fuck you like whatever right. we're doing our own thing you actually see their information gathering and reports as having real world 
practical implications in people's lives, right? right. So that they're also doing reports sort of like amnesty um, right. that are mattering to real politics. Yeah. It's just interesting why they get... I mean, maybe in some way they're freed of, like, the constraints of... I don't know. I don't know how that happens. Probably some intrepid leadership story has to be part of that sto- that mm-hmm. account, right? Because... Yeah. I mean, the right mix of people and... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an interesting question from... Yeah, and how you get... I mean, you have, like, these dictatorships during this period, and why are they going along with this? I mean, like, mm-hmm. again, it's, like, that part where it's, like, in a certain regard, it's seen as toothless, and so you sign on to look good, right? You, like, burnish your international image right. by, like, going along with it, but... Right. Assume it's meaningless, and... Right. But then you have OAS sort of bureaucrats isn't quite the right word, but bureaucrats, intellectuals, whoever, that are then able to, like, go do these reports that end up having, like, mm-hmm. value. And, like, value later in some cases, right? Mm-hmm. They go do their fact-finding stuff, and maybe in the moment it doesn't do particularly much, but, like, then it becomes used in trials that then, mm-hmm. you know, hold torturers to account and right, right. this kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, so I think anyway. they call that area like diplomatic history or something you know <laughs> mostly military academies study this kind of stuff right you know? yeah it's yeah. not really there's not that... much written on the oas either you know when i was trying to plan for this class and give a you know when thinking about this yeah. as being part of our yeah kind of course like three people in the u.s that have expertise in the yeah. history of the oas yeah and there's like not that many books on it like i assigned for the class like one of the only there's like three books half of them are really old like it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. It's weird. I mean, it's a weird org, but also just weird that no one, you know, funny. Yeah. No one cares. No one cares. All right. And it's like, it's like an easy project for a historian. It would be very because easy. Because it's like a professional organization with a paper trail forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, and really kind of interesting in some of the stuff that we've read about it over the course of this time. Like, I mean, uh, I mean, especially we're on Argentina now. I mean, Argentina has had like fasting. I don't know if any Argentine scholars have written in Spanish and like. I imagine there's probably lots of Spanish language stuff on the way. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't look because I can't assign that for my classes. But right. Um, right. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Um, pages 98 and 106 foundations especially the Ford Foundation also played a major role in funding now speaking of like like Ford Foundation like historians have written tons tons and tons of stuff on the Ford Foundation but not I knew you would enjoy this card this one was for me yeah this one you're really winding me up here especially Mm -hmm, the Ford mm -hmm. Foundation also played a major role in funding human rights work especially academic research This was true broadly and applied to the case of Argentina, where European and U.S. foundations provided much of the group's funding. Yeah, I mean, that's, I I guess I shouldn't be surprised at all that the Ford Foundation's involved. No, absolutely. I mean, they're involved in everything in the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that's, like, fascinating that I should have actually kind of known that Ford did, and I remembered one of these stories of a scholar that I... Is that they've got so much money. Yeah. And they're the late comer. To the fil- to the major foundations game, right? And so they want to have like they want to they want to establish themselves quickly as just as good as Carnegie, and right, just right, as right, good right. as Rockefeller. Well, did you know this? So I, I like I said I haven't read this in ages, and there's stories about scholars whose work I've read, you know, in right. Latin America. Um, but one of the things that they did was basically they supported you know this because it's in some of your research social science, yeah. 
Yeah. And the early human rights the stuff SSRC. actually comes out of their work on social science. And one of the things that they were doing was basically um, protecting and then creating centers for social scientists fleeing repressive mm-hmm. regimes. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were like just being like, okay, you guys all had to leave. So now you have a center like to like That's write what they your all stuff. did in the um, World War Two for all of the uh, European immigrant scholars. Right. Like it has a so they did it in Latin history. America too. Right. I mean, it's like fascinating, right? Where yeah. they're like, you know, like rescuing Brazilians and like yeah. trying to like and there's some controversial stuff where I mean, again, it's like Ford actually takes this sort of position of neutrality where, you know, some scholars are accused of being communists or something like that. And then like one of the Ford reps like stands up for them. And Mm -hmm. then like, you know, then there's like debate in the Ford foundation of like, was that political? Was it right? Was it, you know, so it's sort of interesting. I mean, it's sort of a fascinating, fascinating thing. Um, Yeah. Those those foundations were really active. Mm -hmm. Anything that touches social science in the cold war is like, the and the, the human rights that. kind of like f- comes out of this actual support of like the sort of ac- the intellectuals who were targeted by these in in Latin America the the intellectuals professors and researchers were a prime target of uh, right these regimes. Hmm. All right, so if that's another plank, right? The, so we've talked about international NGOs, domestic NGOs, foundations, foundations mm-hmm. um, foreign government actors um, mm-hmm. are sort of the final important player in these human rights networks. Um, but one of the, and while they're actually like very important in a certain regard, they're the least stable of these actors because right. depending on Priorities the administration, right? exactly. Right. right. Um, so Keck and Sakink say on page 98 that the link to government is simultaneously the most powerful and the least dependable aspect mm-hmm. of the work of the network. Um, as it often depends on individuals occupying key posts. And you can see this very clearly. Um, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. Um, but like during the Carter administration, it was a very human rights oriented administration. So the human rights officer in the State Department is basically part of these human rights networks. Mm-hmm. Then Reagan comes in. That is not the case anymore. We're like back to a more traditional kind of Cold War perspective. And all of a sudden that mm-hmm. that office is basically out of the network. Right. 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 So you have the same post that shifts between administrations. Every four years, right. Yeah. You've got patronage that and priorities. When priorities, and priorities. Priorities, absolutely. I mean, Carter was um a strong proponent of human rights as uh, in spite of all the failures mm-hmm. of his administration. Uh, mm-hmm. So. An evangelical Christian. He Carter. was a Baptist. He was right? born again. But then he left the. I think he, he was since our, left the church. I think he was maybe our first born again president. President, I mean, peanut farmer. He's also he's also very short. Short. Yeah. He's a very short. Our shortest president. Yeah. As is Rosalind, his wife. Also short. We gotta get that picture of you guys up. I do. I have. I go. Maybe that's what I should post. <laughs> I have a yeah, picture yeah. with the Carters somewhere. All right. Uh... Pages 107 and 108 here. The junta adopted a sequence of responses to international pressures. From 1976 to 1978, the military pursued an initial strategy of denying the legitimacy of international concern over human rights in Argentina. By 1978, the Argentine government recognized that something had to be done to improve its international image in the United States and Europe and restore the flow of military and economic aid. During 1978, the human rights situation in Argentina improved significantly. 
and the practice of disappearance as a tool of state policy was curtailed only after 1978 when the government began to take the international variable seriously. So this is a little bit about the effect, right? right? So we sort of see the way in which these networks sort of worked a little bit in the Argentina case here. We've mm -hmm. got a little bit of details of how that played out. And then we see how it works, right? So all these reports mm -hmm. and all of these sort of international activism and international connections do create some international pressure, right? As we've seen, the mm -hmm. OAS doesn't have much teeth individually, but as it makes um, individual countries less willing, right, to support and more willing right. to sort of put some kinds of pressure, sanctions, whatnot, that you do start seeing some of these results that I think... Um, the sort of contrasting case of Mexico, right, where you don't see these same things happening, right, the regime completely ignores any, mm -hmm. there's there's a little talk of the 68 Tlatelolco right. massacre, right, which, you know, in spite of the fact that there was a lot of attention on Mexico that year because of the Olympics, um, right. that, you know, like you don't get in any way the same kind of pressure on the regime following that big sort of incident of repression. Um, but here you do see this change. Right? I mean, it doesn't, in a certain regard, we could say it doesn't matter because still so many people died. Um, but in another sense, right, it did sort of shift the, what was happening to some degree, right, that this was, and certainly individual lives, people will attest to their, you know, Guillermo O'Donnell, who's a famous scholar, will talk right. about like the Carter regime's policy, the Carter administration's policy as saving his life. Uh, I think there's, some, right, right, you know, so, um, What's also interesting, not having not having read the counterfactual case, it's also just an interesting story to think about how. It, I mean, what I hear, what I hear you saying is, it's almost like you've got all of these international links being created, and that those are important, uh, and they're essentially it's like it's like a little bit of like resources that have been created that that the um that that international governments like that what am i trying to say here that you need all of this like you need all of them working together right yeah yeah that yeah. like in a sense it's like the activists in the domestic sphere create the links to the foreign ngos and the foreign ngos can create this as an important as something or maybe they maybe they're unrelated but like somehow you need these institutional links mm -hmm. so that these institutional links in a foreign government or in a foreign place have the possibility of of mattering in the internal politics even like that even not in public politics but in just elite insider games right certainly right yeah. that like some member of congress takes this up because it's important to a constituent Right. right, like someone from wherever Ford Foundation is, I can't remember where Ford Foundation was, um, but like imagining like a, a congressperson who represents the district where the Ford Foundation is. Right, right, right. Right, like it suddenly becomes important. Well, and here's something funny that I I will say, admit, sort of, this is like a little bit about how the cake is baked, I guess. Right, so I assigned this chapter. And oh, this cake, okay. This cake, the cake right. of our, not the cake of the human rights networks, but of uh, teaching and right. syllabi creation. Right. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do something on transnational human rights, because this is a class about kind of this like international relations side, it's got to be Keck and Sakink. And when I assigned this, knowing that Argentina was one of their 
cases mm-hmm. in this chapter, I actually forgot that it was about the human rights networks during the dictatorship mm-hmm. because I actually think about those networks being formed having so much more impact post-dictatorship, right, in the sort of bringing the um, former military officers to account, right? Okay. So, like, I actually forgot that it was – I was thinking it was more about the – the way in which those sort of activist networks had held those people accountable in the uh, aftermath uh-huh. of the, you know, after post-democratization, um, which the book does talk about very briefly, right, just that those networks remained active after the return to democracy and were leveraged to prosecute the architects of repression in Argentina. It's like a little paragraph, mm-hmm. but I had actually forgotten that it, I thought it was all about that part. Right. Um When I assigned it, and then when I was reading it again, rereading it for a class to prepare for the class right. podcast right. <laughs> just what we're doing now um yeah i was like oh right this is actually about the way that those activist networks formed during under the mm-hmm. repressive regime right um which was interesting to me because like i said my memory of it was a little bit different than um what it was so it's kind of interesting because i actually think there's enduring Right, it created these enduring networks that then mattered in that sort of post. The effect is longer than just during that, right? You right. know, period of the authoritarian regime, right? Of having those networks be important. And the Madres, uh, you know, those groups. There's a couple. They've sort of splintered a little bit, but they still protest and they mm-hmm. still are active mm-hmm. social movements in Argentina. Um, I saw some of their protests. They protest weekly, I guess. Mm. Um, when I was down. Whenever that was last year, I guess, mm-hmm. last summer. I was supposed to be back in June, but... Not happening. It does not seem that will occur. <laughs> the college wouldn't give me the money even if you could go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting... I like it too because it's, it's uh, because of how... Because it shows how hard political change oh, is, 100%, right? 100%. And I mean, 100%. That, that process that the that's happening in Argentina is, is trying to tackle one of the hardest problems, right? I mean, right. that's up there. Yeah, absolutely. Getting a regime to admit that they've tortured, killed, and disappeared people is like, it's probably like the hardest thing you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, one of the hardest things. Up there, for sure. And that it just is, it is a lot of work and a lot of different angles. And like, it's the part where, I mean, it's my, like, real Weberian self where it's like, mm-hmm. this really is like the slow boring of hard boards. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like the slow well, boring of hard boards. And I mean, in this Keck and Kink, you don't see it. I do some of this more in my regular Latin American politics class where you look more at domestic politics. But I mean, some of what these women were doing were these crazy, I can't remember if this was in the mm-hmm. official story movie, but um, these crazy like they were just filling out all this fucking paperwork and going mm-hmm. to like office to mm-hmm. office to office with these like certain like petitions for information to yeah. try to like and so it was like the most banal kind of activism right this wasn't like this kind of glory activism of like uh what was her name that like cuts down the flag and um Bree Newsom, yeah, Bree Newsom, right? But I mean, so it's like where it's like there it's are like heroic, yeah, exactly. Work. Like this is like the opposite of like well, because so much you know, of it like, is like from about like actually not. I mean, in a way, not political, but like people just wanting to know, 
Right. But it be it was political then. Like, I mean, part of those like constant requests became I mean, we're very political, even though they were pretending it wasn't that was very strategic, right? Mm-hmm. Of like we just our mothers, right? I mean mm-hmm. that like we just our mother's line was like they were secretly organizing at this point. Right. They're like writing letters to the OAS. I mean, this is not just we're just mothers, but they were like so using consciousness has been raised. Consciousness has been raised, right? right? But then they're like partly under the guise of like, oh, I'm just a mom. Right. Like I'm just filling out my papers. Like Right. So how much of this is like how much of this not to get too far in the weeds here because we're I'm out of cards and we're out of time. We got to get out of here soon. But well, but I guess I'm 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 wondering how much of this is like. I mean, what's happening with is is there an Argentine women's movement, or is this like really it? Now? No, no, no I'm then. talking about then, right? Like, how much of this has to do with women asserting like their political agency as women? Huge. Yeah. But it was partly because they had more protection from the repression than men. So mm-hmm. where men would be immediately sort of mm-hmm. disappeared from this kind of activism, the women actually used their the, – they used sexism to their advantage, mm-hmm. right? So they used this ability to be like – in the, the traditional – the symbol that they used, which – is like these headscarves. Mm-hmm. The initial thing yeah, was that they that were, the was like the diapers, right? That they were like, they were, I don't know if they were actually using the sort of, you know, the uh, diapers on their head, but not like cloth diapers, yeah. you know? Yeah. So yeah, it yeah. was like, I, I think the initial ones maybe were actually cloth diapers, but if not, it was symbolic of the right. cloth diaper, right? So the right. whole idea yeah. was like, you know, we're mothers, and as mothers, we're pure, right? It was mm-hmm. white. They, like, mm-hmm. a lot of these, like, I think it was the Chileans that did the clean hands. But, like, you had mm-hmm. women were on the forefront of a lot of these protests because they were somewhat shielded from repression. Right. Not entirely. Right, right. I mean, some of these women were... Tortured. And abducted yeah. and, yeah. yeah, and horrible, right? Their sexual violence was used, some against men, too, but... That's that uh, Death against, and the Maiden, right? I don't know. That's that Ariel Dorfman. Play. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That deal with that, I can't remember. Yeah, they made a movie out of it uh, with that. Sigourney Weaver. It was oh, a play, yeah. and they made a nice movie out of it about, uh, with Ben Kingsley. Sorry, and then we'll go. But um, it's good. You should watch it. Uh, so Ariel Dorf, and I'm sorry, uh, Sigourney Weaver plays. Um, I think she plays. Uh, this was uh, Dorfman was Chilean, right? I can't remember. I think so. He was a jerk to me. He was a duke. Yeah, I'm sure I, he was. I wrote him when I was an undergrad about we were all my jerks th- over there. Uh, uh, yeah, because I was writing about Chile, so it had to have been uh-huh. he's Chilean. Yeah, and I wrote him because I was like, "Hey, I like I'm super excited about all this stuff." He was like, "I don't have time for you." Yeah, <laughs> I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm too busy writing my pendejadas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's a good movie though. Uh, Sigourney Weaver plays a woman who was abducted and um, tortured. And in the in the film, a car breaks down one night, like while her husband has run to the grocery store, and a car breaks down outside their remote Chilean like chateau. Okay. And she is a hundred percent confident, though she never saw her torturer, that this person who has shown up on their doorstep right, right, right. is her torturer. It's played by Ben Kingsley, is the okay. torturer. Uh-huh. It's it's very good. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean it's very me- I'm it's, sure I'm sure it's very he melodramatic in the sense of like Ariel it was intended Dorf. for the stage yeah. um but yeah. like anyway. you're all sitting around watching Tiger King and <laughs> you know um I haven't seen it yet Tiger King I mean 
Yeah, we um, haven't watched it. Uh, we just canceled Netflix. You know, we're like the crazy people that are like, <laughs> peace out, Netflix. <laughs> but quarantine. we no, because we switched out for Hulu. Yeah, but I don't watch anything on Hulu. Simone does. Simone does. She's watching. We don't watch anything. We haven't watched a single thing. We don't watch. I think we're probably the only people that have not. Because we podcast. We work at night when our kid is. Our kid is grinding it out. We're grinding it out. It's like the opposite of rise and grind. All right. Be safe. Yeah.